Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We want to share with you a teaser of a podcast that I think you'll like. Uh, it draws on many of the same themes we do here at the Two Mats. It's hosted by a guest you will have heard from one of our previous episodes who also writes occasionally for the New European, Jason Pack. Jason hosts the Disorder podcast alongside former British diplomat Alexandra Hall-Hall. And the pod tackles small and easy questions like, how did the world get so disordered? What are the fundamental principles behind our current era of geopolitics? And it tackles these questions from a centrist, Atlanticist, anti-Brexit and genuinely pro-common sense perspective. Sounds good. The first full season of episodes are out now. You can find them by searching Disorder or by following the link in the show notes. And in this week's episode, Jason and Alex take a hard-nosed look at what the EU does well, trade, and what it does poorly, politics. And they're joined by John Clark, a Yorkshire lad who worked for more than 30 years as a trade negotiator for the EU. Sounds good? Sounds good. Over to Jason and Alex. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And this is Disorder. A podcast where we try, but don't always succeed, to find order in our mad, 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 mad world. And this week, we're going to be talking about the EU, sometimes described as an economic giant, but a political dwarf, the world's largest trading bloc, but an ineffective military and security player, or one that certainly punches below its weight. But is that an entirely fair description? It is, of course, true that the EU doesn't have its own army. It doesn't have hordes of tanks, fighter planes and battleships at its disposal. But it does have other tools for advancing its geopolitical goals. Above all, its economic clout, the amount of aid it gives and the trade leverage it has. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more about how does the EU use that economic muscle for political ends? How does it promote better adherence to human rights, democracy and environmental standards? We're going to look at how the EU is trying to navigate new challenges such as the rise of China and what some see as an increasing isolationist and protectionist sentiment in the US. And finally, most spicily, we're going to get a little bit of an insider's take on what went wrong over Brexit. Stay tuned. Jason, 
Jason, we have a lot of meaty ground to cover today. I have to confess, I'm a little bit of a EU nerd myself. I like talking about this issue. I've worked as a national of the EU, and I've worked with the EU. But since, as a result of Brexit, neither you nor I are nationals or residents of the EU anymore, I'm going to let you kick off with the opening thought. When you think about the EU, how do you see it? The EU is not only an economic giant, but it's a regulatory and soft power giant. What they figured out is how to coordinate and negotiate and leverage cultural and soft power influence. And those are the exact skills that will be needed, I want to point out. Those are the skills that will be needed to solve the primary issues of the enduring disorder around climate, tax policy, corruption, migration. I want to say, Alex, you can't out-EU me. (laughs) I am the biggest non-EU-born Romaniac nutcase that I have ever met. Being a part of global supranational coordination institutions is what I most care about in global politics. I see no solutions to any of our problems without EU-like institutions. Wow. Well, you're more of an enthusiast about the EU than I am, actually. I think it's a misconception to think I'm this mad, crazy Romaniac. I'm not. I don't think the EU is the source of the world's solutions. My issue with Brexit is I never thought the EU was the source of the UK's problems and therefore leaving it wasn't the solution to the UK's problems. So I see the EU as a bit of a curate's egg. It's good in parts. It's a little bit of a broad brush distinction, but I would sort of distinguish between its internal policies and its external policies. On the internal side, I think the EU has done very well, and that's not least been because they've surrendered competences to the Commission, and the Commission has the power to negotiate all these agreements, and they have qualified majority voting. They've been willing to surrender a little bit of say for the collective good. I think where the EU is weaker and where the sense of it being less effective on the international stage is on the external element, it's foreign policy, because there it's still governed by unanimity. And so it makes decision making a lot harder. It makes it slower. And when the EU has reached a decision, it's much harder for it to shift from that position and adapt changing circumstances. So you get this phenomenon of the lowest common denominator, and a country like Hungary can use its veto to block action. Well, a lot of interesting points there. I agree with a lot of the content, Alex, but I'm not sure the curate's analogy resonates with me. It feels a bit harsh. What I understand a curate's egg to mean is that those areas where the EU is spoiled inherently taint the areas that are unspoiled. I want to call a spade a spade. The EU is very, 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 very poor at politics. I believe that what Macron said about NATO i.e. NATO is brain dead, does not apply at all to NATO, but it does apply to the EU. And I'm going to tell a story that illustrates this. While I was pretending to do my PhD at Cambridge and really setting up my consulting company, I remember taking a spring break, as one does, in Libya. And while I was there, I was invited to brief the EU ambassador. And she's allowed me to tell this story. I tell it in my book. Her name was Napalia Apostolova. She was a Bulgarian diplomat. 
She's asking me, you know, who matters in Misrata? What are the militiamen I should talk to? And I said, well, in Misrata, you've got to talk to Bashara and you've got to talk to Fauzi Abu Al. And she's writing down these names. And her secretary is like, oh, can you help us get the phone numbers of these people? And I'm like, no, I'm a graduate student. Can't you ask the British or the Italian governments who have like deep intelligence operations and they're they're talking every week. Can't he give you the phone number of him? And she looks me straight in the face and she says, the Italians or the British would never share such sensitive intelligence with us. And I'm like, (laughs) like the phone number of a minister? And then it occurred to me, the EU does not get the weekly updates or the situation reports of the member country embassies. They didn't have the ability to draw on the Libya knowledge of the Italians. So this means that the EU is brain dead in any context where the member states don't want to share information about what their policy is. Yeah, but okay, so I have two different experiences. When I was posted to Bogota in Colombia, I agree the EU's approach was harder to coordinate. The Spanish considered this their backyard, so they were quite protective of their insider knowledge and connections and took a little bit of pride and were a little bit resistant to sort of other countries suggesting how we ought to deal with Colombia. But I had a completely different example to yours in Georgia. We used to have monthly EU heads of mission meetings And the EU ambassadors were generally very good. And we tended to pool our knowledge. It worked really well. That can be easily explained is that Georgia is a country that the EU has an association agreement with and is willing to try to help. Yes, the Germans may want a slower pathway to Georgian membership in NATO, but all EU member states essentially want to be helping Georgia. And therefore, they coordinate and work well. Whereas in Libya, there isn't any kind of consensus about what we should be doing or who we should be supporting. So that the EU as a mechanism doesn't work in, in those situations. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To help us understand these issues really well, we need to talk to an actual trade policy expert. So I'm really delighted that we're joined today by John Clark who has just retired after working for 30 years as a high-level trade expert and negotiator for the European Union. Since John and I are both British, and he was working in the EU while I was working on the UK side, we obviously couldn't resist having a little bit of a chat about what happened during Brexit. And we're going to come to that during the interview But I began our conversation by asking him, how did he come to be working for the EU in the first place? In 1973, when I was a 15-year-old living in Huddersfield in Yorkshire, and my dad broke into my bedroom in the morning and said, we joined the EEC. Yay! I never imagined that decades later I'd be actually a senior official for the European Union. I mean, what happened was I was working for Hong Kong at the time and negotiating with the EU. And I was very impressed by the quality of their negotiators. And I thought, you know, I'd like to be part of this team. So I, I joined the EU on that basis. I also love Belgian beer, <laughs> the next best thing to Tetley Bitter. So, and I've never looked back. 60 agreements, and it's been a lot of fun. And I've never had to make any kind of moral compromise, which I'm very happy about. I've always been able to believe in what I'm doing. Okay, so what are the ingredients for a successful negotiator? What does a good negotiator have and do? Well, I have a kind of baker's dozen of of lessons that I think are really, really fundamental. One, never tell a lie. It'll come back to bite you. Second, respect the other partner. Don't underestimate them ever. Every other country is fighting for their own interests, and you have to be wary. And I've seen several occasions where the other side has played some very, very dirty tricks. In the wine, wine agreement negotiated with the USA, they stole our negotiating dossiers from the room. They literally stole them? And copied them. They took them away. Wow. You finish the morning's work and you say, can we leave our stuff in the in the room? Is it safe? Yeah, sure enough, I'm lock it up. <laughs> we found that they were actually photocopying it all, yeah? Another occasion, I, I'm not going to tell you who did this, a negotiation with Brazil. The minister noted that when the Brazilians left the room, the Brazilian side had left their negotiating file on the table. And he said to his head of cabinet, get it, go and copy it quickly. The cabinet guy said, I can't do that. That's unethical, completely unethical. So what happened, the commissioner took the thing himself, put it down his trousers and walked out of the room and went to the Xerox and copied himself, yeah? Which gives a new meaning to the briefs, I would say, yeah? He had the briefs in his briefs. (laughs) Third, be flexible and creative. Use humour, use culture to keep the tone positive. Fourth, never get angry unless it's planned in advance. Negotiate with, not against the other partner. Recognize that it has to be mutually beneficial, not a winner-takes-all approach and not the Trump approach. Keep your constituencies on side. Consult them all along the way so you have trust and there are no surprises at the end. Master the detail. Have a good intelligence network in the other country so you know what's going on politically, etc. 
know when to stop negotiating. Stay calm. Don't be in a hurry. Don't leave lots of loose ends after the main negotiation is over because that leads to un- unraveling. And last of all, there's no single formula for a negotiation. Yeah? Now, you said that you really admired EU trade negotiators. Are they the best in the world? No, they're among the best. I think there are four or five countries who have really, really top-class negotiators. One is the Indians, 1.3 billion people. To get to the top of the pile there, you've got to be very, very smart. Yeah? So they're very good. New Zealand are brilliant. They pay their people very well, and they get the best people. The Brazilians are very interesting. I mean, I, I used to think the Brazilians were brilliant negotiators. I've changed my mind on that. They never know when to stop. They over-negotiate. They do tantrums. They walk out of the room. Yeah, the EU, we're among the, the best trade negotiators because we have strong legal competences, and we are, I think, fairly sincere and balanced and reasonable in our approach to trade negotiations. At least I try to be. Okay, I was going to come to Brexit later, but actually what you've just told me has triggered a whole series of thoughts for me. Now, the UK left the EU. It has failed to reach a trade agreement with India. It has failed to reach a trade agreement with the US. It has signed a trade deal with New Zealand and Australia on terms that many now consider are highly unfavourable to British farmers. And it has signed a trade deal with the EU, which has thrown up a whole host of non-tariff barriers and made trade between the UK and the EU worse. So that's a pretty poor record of trade negotiations by the UK. Tell me, what went wrong with the UK? Why were they so unprepared for trade negotiations? And how have we got to this point Brexit basically dealt the UK very weak hand in any negotiations, yeah? And to negotiate with the EU, an agreement which is actually worse than what they had, nothing to be proud of, yeah? Secondly, the UK government had no experience of trade negotiations because it had been given to the EU to do for the last 30, 40 years. And of course, I think they, the biggest mistake was to regard the EU as, if, feel like, as the enemy and not the partner. You know, you negotiate with somebody, not against somebody. And that's something that the UK just did not get at a political level. The civil servants are fantastic in the UK. No complaint there. But the politicians, they saw the EU as almost like the enemy. That is a recipe for disaster. You've got to build up trust with the other side and basically sit down with them and say, look, we've inherited this problem. How can we help each other to fix it? Right. And the UK did not do that. Moving on from Brexit... Just to help us understand, what are the type of agreements that the EU has in trade? To be very simple, we have four kinds. We have one-way preferences, where we give complete access to the other country, mostly poor African countries, yeah? Second kind is free trade agreements, like with Japan, Canada, Vietnam, so two-way access. Third kind is a customs union, like we have with Turkey. And the fourth kind is kind of integration agreements with our neighbours, where not only do we dismantle duties, but we also, they align to our regulations, so they become part of the single market. To put it in terms of going to the pub, the first kind, one my preferences, it's on the house. I buy you as many drinks as you want. You don't have to buy me a drink. I'm paying. Second kind, FTAs. Okay, we'll go Dutch. We pay for our respective drinks. Third kind, customs union. We'll have the same drink. We'll buy each other's drinks, but we'll have the same drink. And the fourth kind, the integration agreements, okay, we're going to have the same drink, we're going to have dinner together, and maybe, and if 
I play my cards right, you'll come home to bed with me tonight. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what have been the EU's most successful trade deals to date, do you think? Well, we're running out of road a little bit, but our free trade agreements with the lot of the world, perhaps our most obvious success in the last 10 years. I mean, half of our trade now, a bit more than half, is on preferential terms. And that's been quite successful. I mean, we, we basically, you know, covered almost the whole world now with the exception of, uh, you know, US, Russia, China, big omissions, but there are very good reasons for that. The other thing I would say about EU trade policy and successes, we've been using our trade agreements and negotiations for decades for political ends. So trade has been the EU's foreign policy, basically. Okay. We've used trade agreements to promote not only, you know, exports of champagne and BMWs, but also our values, human rights, labor rights, environment, climate, biodiversity. And I think on that, we've been moderately successful, but we're running out of road now because a lot of countries, they don't want to negotiate trade agreements with all of this heavy environmental and human rights baggage. The Disorder podcast is out now. Make sure you follow us so you can get every episode right now in your feeds. Come and order The Disorder with us. Thank you.